0: I think all youth should be able to have access to the outdoors and to have that healing power of nature, because the next leaders in making climate decisions should be as diverse as the people in our country.
1: I'm Damian Willis, and this is The Reporter's Notebook from the Las Cruces Sun News, a podcast in which we attempt to pull back the curtain on our reporting process while diving deeper into some of the biggest stories of the week. In this week's episode, we're talking about Latinos in the Outdoors. This series, written by Monica Ortiz Uribe at the El Paso Times, profiles several champions of the cause and also features some ways southern New Mexico and El Paso residents can get out and enjoy our public spaces. We'll talk about how this series came about. And then dive deeper into the individual stories of those profiled like Nicole Roque, Eddie Misquez, Jerome Ford, and Gabe Vasquez. We'll also talk about easily accessible places that you can explore pretty much on the cheap if you're in El Paso or Southern New Mexico. We're joined by Monica Ortiz Uribe, who talks about her reporting on this series. First, Monica, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today.
2: You're very welcome, Damien. Uh, thanks for having me on again. It's a pleasure.
1: Yeah, it's it's fun. Uh, the, the last time we had you on was a great time. Can we start out just by talking a little bit about how this series came about? Part of what we do on this podcast is to try to peel back the curtain on some of the newsroom conversations that lead to a series like this. What can you tell us about that process?
2: Sure. Well, um, I am the race and diversity reporter at the El Paso Times, and so covering um, subjects about minorities and people of color and their experience in this country and in this region are precisely my beat and so actually this series of stories which we call we're calling Latinos in the Outdoors was born out of a partnership that NMSU is starting with the US Fish and Wildlife Service They are partnering together with UT San Antonio to create a program that recruits more minority students into the natural sciences field, and in particularly to um, the federal natural resource agencies like the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So my editor brought this partnership to my attention and said, hey, this is probably a good story for you to pursue. Look in depth as to why this program is necessary and uh, and indeed, the reason why is because minorities and people of color are vastly underrepresented in these kinds of professions and even in the outdoors recreationally, like at national parks
1: and i'm and so, I'm guessing that you came back and you said this isn't a story; this is a series
2: <laughs> well, um in part, yes, because it's very hard to answer the question as to why are minorities underrepresented in the outdoors in just a single story. And so um, in the course of my um, reporting in this region, I've come across some pretty cool individuals with histories in the outdoors. And I figured um one way to explain the reason why we're underrepresented in nature and in these uh environmental professions is through people who are working and recreating in the outdoors and who are minorities. And so that's a, a that's a much more fun approach, um a more palatable approach than giving you like this very black and white or or academic um type of uh report on why minorities are underrepresented. So um, that's how that's how I pitched it. I said I'll do this uh, fish and wildlife uh, partnership story, but let's pair it with the stories of individuals um, who are living and working in our region and what their connection to nature is.
1: Mention that each of these profiles kind of helps understand why Latinos and minorities are underrepresented in the outdoors, they each come from a a different background and um, establish their connection in nature in a different way. Can you speak to that a little bit more?
2: Yes. Uh, And this is part of why I loved reporting this series was because I tried to choose individuals who came from slightly and in one case, vastly differing backgrounds. And so if you're a, a minority person of color, underrepresented individual, you may be able to relate to one or the other, or maybe even all three in some way. Uh, so yeah, I was very uh, strategic about choosing individuals uh, with different backgrounds. And so yeah, we can we can talk about them individually if you if you like.
1: We certainly will. And I think it's interesting that the series began, understandably, with kind of a a guide for getting outdoors in El Paso and southern New Mexico. I think I'd like to finish with that one because it seems to make sense. So let's start with Nicole Roque, who was, I think... The person you were referring to just a minute or two ago—she's an urban Chicana who is now working as a park ranger. Tell us about Nicole.
2: Oh yes, so Nicole was was a delight to meet and a delight to get to know and, and talk with. So her background is um, pretty much the similar to your average family in El Paso, which is Mexican American working class, highly urban, and a little bit intimidated, maybe a little bit or a lot intimidated by nature. And uh, so she grew up in an apartment complex on the east side of El Paso on a street uh, called Litrovino, which El Pasoans will certainly recognize. She was raised by her single dad. Um, It was very cute. She shared a story about how her dad would braid her hair and with the help of this like how-to book how to braid a girl's hair um, and uh, he would dress her up and and was just a, a wonderful companion to to grow up with and uh, so you know growing up in an apartment she had a tv and they had cable and she would watch the animal planet and she really became curious about nature and wildlife, but she lived in the middle of the city. And so it was a little bit of a challenge to find nature, but she did. Where I found nature in my everyday life was in the drainage
0: ditch behind my apartment in the golf course that we would like sneak into. And so that's where we found trees and that's where we found grass and that's where we saw Lizards, and we heard frogs.
1: I think that's fantastic because it, it obviously uh, sparked a curiosity in her that has carried forth into what she's doing right now.
2: Yes, and you know, what I think is important about Nicole's story is that again, she's representative of the majority of minorities who live in cities and um, yeah overall even not just in El Paso and in the southwest but in the greater United States minorities tend to live in urban environments and uh, come from working class or low-income backgrounds and in neighborhoods where there is a lack of Public green space. Nicole is telling us um, she had to sneak into a private golf course at a neighboring country club to see these to see this artificial pond and the geese waddling around in there.
1: Monica, it's kind of interesting because there is a, a theme that runs between her story and and that of Shahid Mustafa, who was also an urban youth minority who moved to southern New Mexico and ended up in agriculture.
2: Yes, correct. Yeah. I mean, so for those of us who have grown up in cities um, and live in neighborhoods where there isn't a lot of green space and don't have examples um, among friends and family and our mentors who, who work and play in the outdoors, it's hard to see ourselves doing such a thing, either working or recreating in the outdoors. And so Nicole's story is the story of so many of us who are minorities and live in, um, in the cities. But that doesn't mean we aren't curious about the outdoors or interested in trying it out. But it's a little bit scarier for us because we don't have, again, the example of, of how to do it. You didn't. And, uh, you
1: didn't grow up camping and fishing and uh, that sort of thing.
2: You're asking about me personally.
1: Uh, no. Uh, well, I'm. Yeah. I'm. I'm. I'm speaking about people who grow up in urban centers, kind of generally.
2: Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. No. That that connection to nature um, has been uh, ha- has been severed uh, for for many reasons. I mean, just for the the most obvious being that you live in in a city, right? Um, and uh, there's uh, there's there's traffic and there's concrete and pavement, and uh, yeah. So that was certainly uh, Nicole's situation. So it's hard for us in those of us who are minorities and growing up in these urban centers to connect with nature for the simple fact that we live in a city but also um for working class or low-income minorities there's also the economic and time consideration that yeah there's a,
1: a barrier there an inherent barrier.
2: Correct. Yeah. Like Nicole, you know, she grew up with a single dad who worked at an auto mechanic shop, not far from their apartment complex, right? So um, they didn't, you know, they don't necessarily have the disposable income to uh, travel a long ways or take a lot of time off or buy gear. Um, buy an RV. Or, but one of the, one of the things um, that Nicole pushes against is that You can have access to nature without getting um, all the fancy gear and without feeling... There are simple ways to access nature. And so she takes that into consideration. Uh, The people who she advocates the most to visit Waco tanks, where she works, are the people who are least likely to visit. And so, yeah, she pushes against this idea of what an outdoors person is supposed to look like. And uh, I'll play you a clip uh, where she describes this... uh, Uh, this notion of um, outdoorsy people. I think a
0: lot of times there's this image of what outdoors people look like, you know, the dudes with the gear and the hats and the glasses and stuff. and, And that's not what it needs to be. You know, like my love of the outdoors is sitting in a cave. It's stopping and looking at flowers. It's, you know, listening to the birds. It's feeling the wind.
2: So, you know, she's saying if you want to get outdoors, if you want to enjoy nature, you don't have to go to a remote destination. You don't have to be into extreme sports and you don't have to have all this fancy gear. Uh, come out to Waco Tanks and uh, sit and sit and enjoy the view. Check out the pictographs. And she, she's even an advocate of, you know, finding, finding nature in your own backyard the way, the way she did.
1: Monica, you also profiled Eddie Misquez, who's from the Black Range in southern New Mexico. His ties to the Gila National Forest go back generations, right?
2: Centuries, uh, Cent- yeah, centuries. Centuries. It's quite so. We go from uh, from. Mexican American city girl um, to this other extreme, where we've got this Hispanic family in New Mexico who never, who was never disconnected from nature. I mean, nature is all they. It's it's their lifestyle. When we when
1: we talk about centuries, we're talking about Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo and the border crossed us, and further back beyond that
2: correct yes yes so um eddie and his family they can trace their roots to um the Spanish settlers and uh, and the Spanish settlers who then mixed with uh, the Native Americans uh, who lived yeah. who lived there previously and so it's this in Spanish we call mestizaje this mixing of Native American and Spanish heritage that New Mexico is so famous for and so they are among these families who have been in and around the Gila National Forest for generations and yes indeed that go back centuries. And so, yeah, he, he's he, One one of the things he, I, I asked him, so Eddie, tell me some of your first memories in the outdoors. And he says, well, you know, that's a difficult question because there's never a time that I can remember when I wasn't in the outdoors. <laughs> he's saying, I've been, I've been outdoors since I can probably crawl.
1: Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So what was the story that you wrote about Eddie?
2: Yeah, so I should say that um Eddie Misques, uh, he's twenty three years old. Um he lives in Mimbres and his uh he works as a wildland firefighter in the summers for the U.S. Forest Service. During the rest of the year, he's a student at uh, WNMU in Silver City. And he grew up, again, in this family, um, this Hispanic family, where their lifestyle was um, packing into the Gila, um, going on multi-week hunts, bringing back elk and deer, fishing in the rivers of the Gila, bringing back fish, and so the story is about his family ties and how he expresses his love for the outdoors, um, partially through firefighting, Um, and how the landscape that him and his family know and love changing uh, because of climate change. And he talks about how he witnesses that change uh, through firefighting.
0: In the modern age, we're losing a lot of wild places at a rapid rate. When you better the relationship with those wild places, whether it's through camping or hiking or any form of recreation out there, you really get to understand why those places are so important and that once we lose them, there's not going to be a sustainable earth in, in the future.
2: So what Eddie is describing won't come as a surprise to most of us Southern New Mexicans because just last month we watched the gigantic plume rise up from the black fire in the Gila Wilderness, and that was a fire that uh, Eddie uh, was fighting. Uh, he was part of an engine crew with the with the Forest Service, and so that fire has burned through so much of the landscape that that he knows and loves and uh, you know not too many people we may live and uh, and recreate in in southern New Mexico and in the Gila but not too many people get in as deep or as far into the wilderness as Eddie and his family do. I should one of the other points uh, that I bring up in uh, Eddie Mieskes's, uh profile is how wildfire, the nature of wildfire, is changing um, just about everywhere, but particularly here in the Southwest. Uh, fire has always been a normal, healthy part of the ecosystem. It's the way the forest cleans itself up uh, yeah, it's it's, it's
1: a regenerative tool, almost.
2: Per- yes, yes, it's the way that the forest cleans itself up and regenerates. Um, but um, in the last decade, we've seen these the rise of the megafire. And what that is, is a combination of an old forest service policy, where there was excessive suppression of wildfire, and therefore an excess of fuels build up, like, you know, more trees than would normally grow if wildfire were allowed to proceed naturally through the landscape. There's that, that's one element. And the second element is climate change, where we've got hotter and drier conditions, and the two combined, the excess fuels, the hotter and drier conditions, are resulting in these megafires that are taking a greater toll on the forest and changing it in a way that wildfire was not doing before. And so again, Eddie Eddie and his family are witnessing this and having to grapple with the landscape that they know and love again transforming, that the forest that the Gila was for generations may not, after it burns, it's not altogether clear that that forest is coming back, particularly uh, these old-growth forests, these spruce and pine trees right. that are centuries old, between three and five hundred years old. I spoke to um, to a tree specialist who's just uh, written a, a book about the trees of the Gila, him him and a partner, and uh, yeah, you you get into some higher elevation. Um, spots in the Gila and there are or were in many cases these um, areas of magnificent old growth trees that uh, used to be able to survive wildfires and uh, are no longer able to do so and it's unclear whether they will be growing back or not or maybe something else is going to come and grow in its place. Yeah, and so Eddie Eddie acknowledges that and uh and, and so he's a he is as all the people I interviewed in this series are big advocates for getting people into the outdoors. Um so you can that's the best way that you can understand and appreciate nature.
1: You wrote that Jerome Ford nearly missed the chance to Pursue his dream career in wildlife conservation after the sudden death of his parents meant that he had to kind of put a temporary stop at least to his college education and get a job. He was a biology major. He graduated high school with a 4.0, basically resigned himself to join his older siblings in Dallas to work in the construction field. Tell me about his story and how that ties into the overall project.
2: Yes. So Jerome went to Grambling State University in Louisiana and uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service had a partnership at his school and, He had the good fortune of being called into that program, and uh, that was the main reason why he has the job that he has today. And uh, again, he is at a senior management level, one of, you know, a few minorities that have made it to that level um, in the Fish and Wildlife Service. And so he's a huge advocate for what the Fish and Wildlife Service is currently doing, this partnership in recruiting um, minority students. And um, yeah, New Mexico State is, is the perfect uh, place to undertake this partnership because it has a large minority student population. And uh, it's near, um, it's in New Mexico, which is uh, surrounded by public lands.
1: And I, I guess this is kind of a, a callback to where the the story began, where the series began. This was the original story that you thought you were going out to write.
2: Yes, yes. And in fact, I did. I did write the story. Um, and it it was it opened up our, our series. And uh, it explains uh, the Fish and Wildlife's efforts to recruit minorities and what they've already done, um, So it goes through, the story also recounts efforts that the Fish and Wildlife Service has undertaken to successfully bring minorities into the agency. And some of those examples are in New Mexico. I spoke, one of the individuals I interviewed for that story is Cynthia Martinez, and she is a... Hispanic, uh, New Mexican, kind of like Eddie, where her family ties go back generations. But she is Hispanic. She is a minority, and um, she now oversees all the national wildlife refuges in the country. That's her post. She is the head of I don't know more than five hundred national wildlife refuges in the country. Oh my god! Um, and one of the- yeah, yeah. So everything from, you know, like in uh, polar bears in in Alaska and uh mountain lions in New Mexico in who live in these refuges, she is in charge of that system. And one of the solutions that she proposed as chief of the refuges is that hey, if we're going to bring in interns, let's pay them a living wage, at least $15 an hour because I know as a Latina, a Hispanic woman uh, growing up in a working class family, there was no way I would take an internship unless it was paid. I needed it to pay my tuition, to pay my living expenses, and so that's what I'm going to go for. So she said she knew that if they wanted to recruit minorities, that's one thing that they had to do. And uh, so if you apply for an internship, With a National Wildlife Refuge, um, you can expect to be paid for your position. One of the uh, refuges where this paid intern strategy is working is Valle de Oro, which is just south of Albuquerque. It's part of um, this new concept of urban refuges where um, the Fish and Wildlife Service is putting refuges within an urban environment. like. Within within pretty close access to the city of Albuquerque because they know that it is you know if they want to stay relevant um, to uh, an urban community they have to also be accessible within within distance um, to to yeah, urban it, residents.
1: You need people who don't have to drive halfway to Socorro to work at a mm-hmm. refuge.
2: Correct. Correct. Yeah. So that's that's part of the strategy as well. And so, yeah, at this wildlife refuge just south of Albuquerque, Valle de Oro, the three interns that they have working are all minorities. Two, as I understand, are Native American, and one is Hispanic. And so... In that case, this strategy implemented by the Hispanic chief of the wildlife refuge is bringing in, is having success at bringing in minorities into um, the natural, this natural resource agency.
1: I yes. also want to talk about your profile you did on uh, Gabe Vasquez, whom i also written about In the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic, Gabe is a longtime conservationist in the area. He was a vocal proponent of the Oregon Mountain Desert Peaks National Monument. He's a former Las Cruces city councilor, and we should certainly note is now running for Congress. You spoke to him, though, as a conservationist primarily, not as a candidate. And he had a lot to say about the time that he spent in the outdoors, right?
2: Yes, yes. So one of the reasons why I chose Gabe Vasquez uh, as one of our profiles is because he comes, his, his story encompasses, it's a very regional personal story in that he started out his childhood in Ciudad Juarez across the border in Mexico and uh, later made his way to New Mexico and that's where he lives now and uh, that is the that is also a very representative experience for many people who live here. They came from Mexico, crossed over and now make their lives here and uh, he's also, I, I, I chose his story because his family like Eddie's did have a connection to nature that was then severed because of his grandfather's choice to immigrate to a city, to Ciudad Juarez, in search of economic opportunity, which is the story of just about every immigrant. And Gabe, as the grandson of the immigrant, was exposed to some of that Rural agricultural hunting background of his grandfather, and was in a position to chase or try to try to recapture that life and make reestablish that connection. And again, it's very his story is very emblematic of this multi generational immigrant family experience where at some point our ties to nature were severed and maybe later generations try to recover that connection because there is still this thirst and this longing to connect with nature and that is Gabe's story um, in essence. He describes a moment with his grandfather whose love for the outdoors brought him to New Mexico and he would bring his grandchildren along.
0: When I first came to New Mexico as a kid, we went and fished under the bridge and hatch. And we caught catfish, we played with the box turtles that would come up to us, and then we saw the night sky, this blanket of stars just take over us at night.
2: So the interesting thing about Gabe's story um, and his grandfather's story was his grandfather came from this small farming town in the state of Zacatecas in the interior of Mexico. He then decided to move to Juarez because he kept hearing about this this promise of economic opportunity in, in Juarez. Let's move to the city, and yeah, maybe your financial prospects will improve. And indeed, that turned out to be the case. His grandfather first came as a mailman, and then he opened a TV repair shop. And his, his children were then, able, some of them were able to go to school and get these professional jobs that were not tied to nature um, so to speak. Gabe being the subsequent generation was taken out by his grandfather to places like Hatch to fish under the bridge and he that's how his curiosity for nature was born and so he spent much of his adult life um, chasing this outdoor life that his uh, grandfather for the most part well for in some ways, left behind and in, in the interior of Mexico. So not. So he he talk, He talks about. Uh the challenges and some of the barriers for Latinos to reconnect with with nature.
0: For Latinos, uh, many of us, especially here on the border, we're here to get uh, better jobs than perhaps our parents did. The dream is to live in the suburbs and work in air-conditioned buildings and get away from the fields and get away from the outdoors because that traditionally has been our way of making a living.
2: Yeah, so this idea of progress in an immigrant family, particularly one who's immigrating from an agricultural. Cultural background is, yeah, you want to get away from the outdoors. Working in the fields is backbreaking labor. And so get yourself a, a job where you're working in an office in a professional setting, uh, as he says, in, in the air conditioning, live in the in the suburbs. And so he goes on to say that not a lot of our support systems encourage us to be a biologist or a botanist or a park ranger. And so those options aren't necessarily presented to us. And therefore, a lot of us minorities do not pursue them. And yet another reason why we're underrepresented in these fields.
1: Cycling back to the the bigger picture, what more could be done to ensure that Latinos are better represented in, what should we call it, outdoor culture?
2: Yes, well, I mean, there's, uh, there's many ways to be in, in the outdoors for fun, for pleasure and leisure, and certainly in, uh, in professions and, uh, as a, as a, as a career. And so there are so many things that, uh, that can be done. This partnership between Fish and Wildlife and NMSU is one of the more significant efforts that can be done is to recruit minorities at a young age when they're deciding what do I do with myself? Um, what are my passions? What are my options?
1: While paying a uh, living wage?
2: In some, in yes, in some um, sections of Fish and Wildlife, uh, we weren't sure. Cynthia Martinez wasn't sure um, if all uh, segments of Fish and Wildlife had this same uh, salary. But uh, but yes, yes, that that is, and yeah, so- paying, uh, paying interns who are working in federal natural resource agencies or just any other kind of, uh, field work or environmental science work. But each of the individuals I profile are advocates for bringing in minorities, for introducing minorities, uh, to the outdoors. Uh, Nicole Roque, as a park ranger, she makes it a point to target families who may not know about making reservations or securing a permit to visit Waco tanks. She goes out when there are cars out the gate uh, waiting to get in. She goes and individually, she and her other fellow park rangers, go and talk to them individually, explain how to make a reservation, what the, what the park requirements are. She goes out to schools and talks to students, gets them excited about the wildlife that they can see the history that's at the park. And so they go tell their parents and, uh, it's not a big surprise when that family sometimes shows up at the, at the park, you know, Gabe Vasquez, he co-founded an organization called Nuestra Tierra there in Las Cruces that has become, uh, That that is responsible for creating a state fund that funds organizations that get minority youth into the outdoors by taking them on guided hikes, by providing the gear necessary and uh, introducing them to the outdoors. Because often it just takes that one introduction to establish this interest and what could be a lifelong connection and a desire to go again into the outdoors. Yeah.
1: And uh, finally, I want to kind of finish where we started. You guys published a roundup of some of the best places to get outdoors in and around El Paso and Southern New Mexico what are some of the highlights?
2: Okay. Yeah, well, um, I mentioned some of the places that we mentioned in the the series. Of course, Waco Tank State Park, uh, 36 miles outside of El Paso. It's famous for, world famous for rock climbing and these prehistoric pictographs. Uh, You can also see these Wacos, the namesake Wacos depressions in the Rock, where you can see quote unquote, living fossils, these tiny little aquatic creatures that uh, that live there. I thought they were fascinating. There's the Franklin Mountain State Park, which is runs right through the middle of El Paso. Not a lot of people know that, yeah, there are trails there, and you can hike there and you can camp. There's also parks and trails you can visit within the city, like Ascarate Park. Uh, You can fish there. Um, You can play baseball or tennis, and that's a public park. There's also a Dino Tracks trail just at the foot of Mount Cristo Rey, where you can see the footprints of a five-ton iguanodon. And that was just discovered not too long ago, within the last decade, I want to say. And uh, there are guides who will take you out on a walk and show you these dino tracks. And uh, we give you information for how to do so. In southern New Mexico, there's the Friends of the Oregon Mountains Desert Peaks. Uh, this is an organization that leads hikes out into this national monument that's also fairly new. And they have some programs for youth and families where they can organize camping trips and provide all the gear, which as we mentioned is another is is one of the barriers that prevents uh, especially right. low income families from getting outdoors.
1: What do you want to add, Monica, that uh we haven't already talked about?
2: Well, Damien, I guess um a one of the reasons why I wanted to do this series and why it was important for me to publish it was I see a lot of myself in, in this series. And uh, I recognize that I myself was disconnected to nature growing up as a Mexican-American woman in in El Paso. I grew up in a city where I didn't know what a free-flowing river look like i didn't i never camped in a tent in a forest but i was always curious about it
1: that's kind of funny because when i asked you earlier uh i said i said you and um i really meant like people of color uh not not you specifically except it applied to you specifically.
2: It absolutely did. I mean, I am a minority, person of color, Mexican-American woman living in a majority-minority city, El Paso, Texas. That's where I grew up. And uh, yeah, the there used to be a wild, free-flowing river that would flood and cause havoc through my city, um, but uh, has long been dammed and um, put through a concrete channel and uh, is dry for most of the year. So so that was my concept of a river. And uh, again, I had always been curious about nature, but wasn't quite sure how to get there or or what to do or how, yeah, what to do or how to get there. I remember the first time I tried to set up a tent, I was just totally um, confused and it was a disaster. Um, But thankfully, I have since um, made that connection to nature and it has been such uh, a gift, I can say. Um, Such, I mean, I wouldn't be the first one to say, to uh, remark on the healing powers of of nature. And it certainly has had that effect physically and emotionally to get out into nature. It's been such a gift. Um, And being neighbors to New Mexico, where again, public lands abound and a place like the Gila wilderness where it's so wild, has been has has been just uh, a, a tremendous benefit um to my again physical and emotional well-being and so part of my writing this series was a way to share with other minorities and urban dwellers hey you too can reestablish this connection and not only that but you also have a place in the outdoors. maybe you don't see yourself represented that much in the outdoors, but you have a place, and you we have ancestral ties to the outdoors, and we indeed uh belong there, and uh, we can take so much benefit from it
1: and it's It's not that far away.
2: It is not no, no <laughs> no um, yeah. So that's what our guide is for—to show you where to get started.
1: Monica, thank you so much for your time today. I I really appreciate it.
2: You're welcome. It's a pleasure to to share this subject uh, with you all, and I hope it gets more uh, more people out into nature who are curious, um, but maybe a little bit intimidated by it. It's it's possible.
1: It's possible. It's not hard
2: well for some people it is hard and so we're giving we're hope i'm hoping that this series um will uh will be of assistance make it we'll, uh, will make it
1: make it easier thanks monica you're welcome thank you for listening to this episode of the reporter's notebook we also have a newsletter sharing reporter stories about well uh, about how we report stories you can find all of our stories and the rest of our reporting in the Las Cruces Sun News. A huge thanks goes out to Monica for joining us this week. You can follow Monica's reporting on issues like this and much, much more in the El Paso Times and in the Las Cruces Sun News. Also, you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, uh, basically any place you find your favorite podcasts. This has been the Reporter's Notebook from the Las Cruces Sun News. I'm your host, Damian Willis. This week's episode was written and produced by me. You can find all our local reporting brought to you daily by reporters who live and work in Las Cruces at www.lcsun-news.com. For all of us at the Sun News, thank you for the privilege of your time.